0: Welcome back to the Weird Sisters Podcast, your source for Discworld discussion. My name is Manning, and I am an American werewolf in Unk Morpork. Joining me is Liz, a werewolf.
1: No, not there. There! Look, I'm pointing.
0: And Danny, a Werewaldo.
1: You found me! Good to be back. Good to
0: have you back.
2: (laughs) Yeah, we missed you. I'm I'm doing the heart-shape hand thing.
0: Perfect for an audio medium. (laughs) Our book this month is The Fifth Elephant. The story that mashes together gothic horror and political thriller to tie them up with a big pink bow. I will not blame either of you if this is not what you expected from the title.
1: I was expecting more elephant shenanigans. Same. I was expecting, like, the mystery of the book to somehow tie in with searching for the fifth elephant or something. But it's more of just, like, a world-building detail. Even without
0: another elephant, there is a lot in here. So let's delve straight into the trivia section.
2: Published November 4th, 1999, and coming in at just under 94,000 words, The Fifth Elephant is the 24th Discworld novel and 5th in the City Watch series. The title is a reference to the concept of The Fifth Element, which, apart from being a movie by Luke Basson, is a theoretical form of matter before the four classical elements of Earth, Air, Fire, and Water. The Scone of Stone is a reference to The Stone of Skoon, an object that has been traditionally used in the coronation of Scottish and British monarchs. The term Low King for the ruler of the dwarves is a reference to the legendary High Kings of the British Isles, inverted for a subterranean culture. Brian Bloodaxe, the first Low King of the dwarves, is a reference to Brian Bloodaxe, a computer game published in 1985 by The Edge Software. The Three Sisters in the Cherry Orchard are a reference to several plays by Anton Chekhov, namely, Three Sisters, The Cherry Orchard, and Uncle Vanya.
1: The Fifth Elephant has been translated into over a dozen languages, was nominated for the 2000 Locus Award, and placed 153rd on the 2004 Big Read Survey. The audiobook, published in 2000 and narrated by Stephen Briggs, lasts 10 hours and 48 minutes, with a four-hour version read by Tony Robinson. Briggs also adapted the story for the stage in 2002 and it was set to be performed as recently as August 2020 by the Peculiar Productions Company in Cardiff. But at the time of recording, that run has been delayed indefinitely. As part of the City Watch series, elements from this story have theoretically influenced the BBC television series, but the degree of inspiration remains a matter of debate.
0: As for if we're ever going to cover the show on this podcast, I've decided to hold that hostage until we meet the $200 bonus episode mark on our Patreon. Pay the <laughs> ransom.
1: Need a little bit of encouragement. <laughs> yeah.
0: Our tale begins with a convoy of cargo wagons bringing goods and materials from the mysterious land of Überwald to the massive city of Ankh-Morpork. Little do the drivers know that they have a sinister stowaway sleeping among the barrels of imported fat. They have more pressing concerns, namely that the City Watch has created new rules and regulations concerning the flow of traffic enforced by Sergeant Fred Colin. This part of the story, I can say with near certainty, is a reference to the 1998 British television series The Clampers, which was a reality show about parking enforcement workers who would clamp illegally parked cars.
1: What? (laughs) That almost seems like something that'd be like a a fake television show that a comedy references or something.
0: (laughs) I think it only ran for like eight episodes.
1: I I wonder Why?
0: (laughs) Actually, not the first time that the watch has been used to parody different media. We completely failed to mention when it was referenced in another book, Lord Vetinari called them the keystone of Ankh-Morpork, which is a reference to the Keystone Cops movie series, which is about bumbling police officers. It was like a series of, I think, mostly silent comedies in the early days of film. Added that here for completions sake. (laughs) Gotta be thorough. Elsewhere in the city, there has been a string of riots among the dwarf population, to the consternation of Samuel Vimes, commander of the City Watch. His second-in-command, Captain Carrot Iron Founderson, is reluctant to explain the cause. While he's biologically human, Carrot is a dwarf by upbringing, and hesitant to share cultural secrets with big people. Even so, When he and Vines meet with the ruler of the city, Lord Vetinari, Kert does explain that the dwarfs are fighting about the new low king, Rhys Rhysson, who will be crowned in a few days. The coronation will take place below the town of Bianc in Überwald, but the Ankh-Morporkian ambassador seems to have vanished. As a substitute, the patrician is sending the Duke of Ankh, who, for those who missed out on Jingo is Samuel Vimes. Vetinari also suggests bringing a delegation, including Vimes's wife, and the most senior officers who originally hail from the region, uh, Corporal Cheery Littlebottom, Sergeant Detritus, and Sergeant Ungua von Überwald.
2: We know by this point that Vetinari plans things ahead. He has an uncanny ability to predict the movements of people, but... He absolutely had to know that this was just a disaster waiting to happen. He's he's not that culturally inept.
0: I think he was counting on it.
2: Yeah, so by this point I was just- I wanted to know if this was an elaborate prank of some kind. Like, Veterinari seems to like getting under uh Vimes' skin, and so he kind of knew that this would ruffle his feathers-
1: I think Vetinari kind of had a feeling that there was some... Uh, how much he knew, I don't know, but had uh, had in a sense that there was some uh, tension going on in Überwald. And so, you know, if you send something that has a little bit more friction, you know, maybe you can get things really going. Mm-hmm. Not to mention sending
2: that specific group. You can't deny they know how to get a job done. Vime seems to end up in conspiracy all the time.
0: We join Sergeant Angua as she and Corporal Nobby Nobbs are on stakeout, doing the classic routine of luring out a purse snatcher by disguising an officer as a prostitute. Uh, Following the events of Jingo, it seems that Nobby has started making a habit out of wearing women's clothing. Now, men in drag is a staple of English comedy, and there are definitely shades of cultural transphobia in that being considered humorous, but the narrative doesn't seem to frame Nobby as being in the wrong for enjoying himself here. Yes, Angua seems to find it odd, but the humor in this conversation comes from her being unable to convey to Nabi why this behavior should be considered shameful. My biggest problem with this scene is that, once again, I would rather have seen Nabi talk about gender stuff with Cheery.
1: Yeah, and especially because, like, how much of this book connects to Cheery and her place in the world and her place in Uberwald, like it makes more sense to have her be a more prominent character in the book than i feel like she is. We've had this issue before in
2: previous watch books and i think in previous discworld books in general that there's so many side story there's so many different stories going on at the same time that characters that should be more in the limelight kind of get pushed back for the main plot to happen like Cheery's relationship with how she presents herself, as well as how others see her, kind of frames the story that is Vimes's diplomacy adventure, an adventure in diplomacy. It it it's sort of the icing on the on the cake. It it fills in some of the details that would otherwise be confusing, but it definitely could have been made a little more obvious i think
0: i think this is a recurring theme of our discussions of the books is that a lot of the focal characters stay the center of the story when some of the deuteragonists would have been more interesting as the main characters
2: yeah mhm i really love the whole mystery aspect of it i do i love a good mystery just in general it's just there's so much more going on per book it's like it's kind of difficult to parse at times.
0: But also, this is getting a little bit away from the, the specific point here about Nobby dressing up.
2: Yeah, yeah. As, as far as that goes, I, I really liked that whole scene. Just how Nobby just didn't care about how he was being seen. Like, you could say he was extremely in character, and that's what was humorous about that whole situation. Just how into it he was, but at the same time, it's it, it's refreshing. I'm just like, wow, yeah, go, Nabi. If this, you know, he seemed to be having a good time, and who am I to say he can't do that?
0: Yeah, like, from the very first watchbook, we've known that Nabi enjoys a good costume. He does Morris dancing on his days off, right? So. <laughs>
1: Yeah, something about Nobby's, like, fascination, like, with femininity, I guess, reminds me a lot of, um, M.A.S.H., if either of you have seen Yes! That. I know exactly what you're talking about.
0: I actually am unfamiliar.
1: Um, there's a character, and I'm completely blanking on his name at the moment, but they're deployed in the war, and basically, he doesn't want to be there. And so he starts wearing women's clothing so that he could get sent home. But basically, everybody just kind of blows him off. And so he continues to wear women's clothes throughout the show. And it's kind of played for laughs a lot of the time. But a lot of the laughs are kind of sympathetic to him, where it's not that he's wearing women's clothing, it's that he he's wearing like women's clothing that is like not of a high quality or something. Where it has like these moments where it feels really sympathetic and other times it feels really, really abrasive. Mm-hmm. I've not like seen enough Mash, I think, to like probably put it all together. But like, that's really like what Nobby reminds me of. You know, there are these moments that feel like very good, and these moments that kind of like kind of catch me the wrong way. Klinger. Mm-hmm. that's that's the
2: character's name. Oh yeah, his his picture on the list of Mash characters on Wikipedia is actually him sitting on a stool wearing heels and a short dress and pearls and everything, looking rather put out with whatever situation he's in, but. The best part about that whole character, in my opinion, is that I've never seen him look bad in any of his costumes, in any of his get his, uh, getups.
0: At the risk of extending this tangent beyond feasibility, how does one acquire Pearls while on a military base in Korea?
1: I think there are a couple jokes about how a lot of the stuff is his mother's. That just raises
0: further questions! <laughs>
1: <laughs> he has quite a, a few different
2: s- story arcs that just... They're wonderful.
0: (laughs) Once Angua has retrieved Nabi's purse, she smells something in the air. A present she has not felt since. And she goes off to investigate. Back with Commander Vimes, he takes a trip with Carrot to the Dwarf Bread Museum to see their replica of the Scone of Stone, a ceremonial baked good that has served as the Low King's seat of power for 1,500 years. Without it, there would be no legitimacy to the coronation, and dwarfdom would likely dissolve into civil war. Almost immediately after Vines and Carrot leave the museum, the replica scone is stolen. But since it has been marked, there's no way the thieves could hope to disguise it as the real thing. All that the thieves left behind was a lingering smell not unlike cat urine.
2: Wonderful.
0: (laughs) Delicious. Love it. Return to the Dwarf Bread Museum, which apparently is just Carrot's favorite place to bring people in the city.
1: Carrot's listicle of top ten places in the city, Dwarf Bread Museum, is definitely number one.
2: What better way to show off uh, Ankh-Morporkian culture than its variety of museums?
0: As Vimes prepares to head out for Überwald, he talks with his wife, Lady Sybil Ramkin who mentions that she went to finishing school with Lady Seraphine von Überwald, matriarch of the large von Überwald werewolf family, and mother to Sergeant Angua. The commander also gets advice on dwarf traditions and mannerisms from Sergeant Cheery, who is nervous about returning to the old country, but determined to do her duty. Uh, For the benefit of those who don't remember Feet of Clay, Cheery Littlebottom is a dwarf who is basically credited as the founder of the dwarf femininity movement, which has caused a certain amount of consternation among dwarves who think that basically there should be the gender, instead of the gender binary, the gender unary. Any dwarves that appeared in previous books and identifying openly as female are... don't worry about it. The delegation is also joined by a clerk named Inigo Skimmer, who provides Vimes with a dossier on Überwald. And before they leave, Vimes gets a report on the murder of one Wallace Sonki, proprietor of a condom factory. Kind of weird that Discworld just, like, has all these relatively modern things, right? Like, they've got pizza, they've got condoms, they've got a lot of stuff.
1: Yeah, it feels very refreshing compared to how a lot of fantasy novels handle, you know, history and progress, where it feels like the world kind of just exists in a stasis for like millennia.
0: To be fair, the real world history, especially in Europe, did sort of stay in more or less technological stasis from the fall of the Roman Empire to the Renaissance. It's not actually quite that cut and dry. The real world history is always more complicated than the fiction, but it's not unprecedented.
1: Yeah, it's just it's really nice to like have, I guess, what we'd probably consider like luxuries in, you know, this fantasy world. And it's not like just reserved for the like super wealthy or something, you know?
0: Yeah. Hold on to that thought. We're going to come back to it in just a minute.
2: Yeah, it's just. It's entirely unique as its own genre, I'd say. It's not high fantasy. It's It really, having that mishmash of times and technology and everything throughout the various cultures in Discworld, it, it, it just makes it so itself, is the only way I can really describe it. There's, there's nothing quite like the Discworld.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: I've seen uh a few people especially when it comes to this book talk about Pratchett's ability to create a world that feels grounded in itself. It feels real. Part of that was accredited to the scope. Each book kind of contains itself to a set location or or a set of areas, but at the same time you get little cultural tidbits that you would have to really think about creating if you were to develop a world like that. Like, you get slang, you get tidbits of language.
0: It's thoughtful design, I'd say.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's incredibly well thought out, and just, th- I think that's part of what makes it funny, is because it's so
0: real. Right. around here is also where we get a deeper look into the in-universe story behind the title. The Discworld is a flat planet born through space on a giant turtle, but sandwiched between those two are the four great elephants. There is a legend that, long before recorded history, there were five elephants, but one of them fell off, looped around the system, and eventually crashed into the surface of the disk, causing the continents to break apart into their current shapes. The fat that is dug up in the mines of Überwald is from the elephant's remains, so they say. Either that or It's the result of some ancient natural disaster, causing huge populations of animals to be turned into a sludge that can be put to a variety of uses. That sounds familiar. Yeah, I did not pick up on this being an analogy for oil when I first read this.
1: I mean, I think I got like an inkling of it. But I know that I, I I think probably somewhat subconsciously, I wanted to take it very literally as fat because I found that more fantastical.
0: I mean, it is literal fat. Mm-hmm. It is analogous to oil in round world.
1: Which
2: adds a whole nother layer to conversations that come up later on in the story that if you're not thinking about that metaphor, seem oddly heavy for the conversation that it's a part of.
0: Once that connection was made for me, it made that make a lot of sense. And it's like, oh, right, because people tend to call oil like ground up dinosaurs, but it's really semi-fossilized plankton, I think.
2: Yeah, uh, algae and bacteria. Mm -hmm.
0: What the fat then is, is just taking what people tend to use as a descriptor for oil and it's turning that on its head, which is very clever. I would not have thought of that, Mm -hmm. but I'm not Sir Terry Pratchett. (laughs) <laughs> While Vimes and Associates travel to Überwald by coach, the murder of Wallace Sonke is investigated by Constable Reginald Shu, civil rights activist and zombie. Shu learns a few things from Swankie's assistant, namely that Swankie has enough competition now to have fallen on hard times, but had been hopeful about a special job putting them back on their feet. The constable also notes that the smell of the factory is not unlike the smell from the Dwarf Bread Museum following the theft. He resolves to immediately inform Commander Vimes about this via the Clacks. This is a major new development for the disc world, semaphore towers to facilitate high-speed communication across long distances. The Clacks are an analogy for the internet, at least as it existed in the late 80s and early 90s. And where previous technological innovations on the disc were the result of terrible cosmic forces and had catastrophic effects, the clacks are just sort of a thing that exists now.
1: Yeah, they're like a really interesting like world building detail and luckily they do function in the plot. So they're not just like some glitter on this, but it feels like very, I guess something about them feels very like strange and new.
2: I could kind of compare it, at least the system of how it works more to telegrams and sending signals by Morse code than to the internet, just because of how it's all ciphered and whatnot. True enough. The day they get the actual internet, though, would be a day to fear. In anyone else's hands, I would assume it to be a story about the youth getting sucked in and not coming up and yeah.
0: Yeah, and probably half a dozen books ago, that would have been the plot. Mm -hmm. Half a dozen books ago, and probably, like, five years later. I don't know, that doesn't make any sense, but I'm sticking by it. (laughs) Fair. Sure. Back at the Watch headquarters, Captain Carrot receives a personal message from Angua. After reading it, he immediately resigns from the Watch and goes to find her, leaving Sergeant Colon in command. It's interesting, because Carrot was notably level-headed when Angua was kidnapped in Jingo, so this is kind of uncharacteristic behavior for him.
1: Yeah, the one thing I like uh, really liked about this book is I feel like we got a bit of a window into both Kara and Ongo's relationship and Vime's and Lady Sybil's relationship that we haven't really had up to this point. And I feel like it helped kind of put some things into context for me.
0: While Colin almost instantly breaks down into paranoid tyranny, Carrot finds Gaspode and persuades the dog to help him track Angua out of the city. Introduced in moving pictures, Gaspode the Wonder Dog has human-like intelligence and can talk as a result of magical mutation. Keeping everyone up to speed. You never know which episode is someone's first.
1: Yeah, we gotta cover our bases.
0: Along the way, Gaspode and Carrot find that a small village has caught a wolf. Through Carrot's uncanny charisma and Gaspode's ability to communicate with canines, they help it escape. Before they part ways, the wolf tells Gaspode, and by extension Carrot, that the wolves in the area are none too happy about Angua. Wolves don't like werewolves any more than people like werewolves. This part here, along with a section later where Angua talks about how being a werewolf isn't the same as being like either a wolf or a human. It really reminds me of how some of my friends have described being bisexual, facing prejudice from both gay and straight people. I think I've brought this up before, but it it really came through strong here.
1: Yeah, totally. And as a bisexual person, like there's some amount of like an internal conflict because of those like outside pressures that you end up internalizing. And I really sympathize with Agua when we get to see those parts of her.
0: For a book written at the end of the 90s, that's like a very modern thing. Mm -hmm. I've heard people talking that way like this year.
1: Yeah, it is remarkably nuanced and thoughtful, I think. And I'm sure like you could probably like extrapolate it to a whole lot of like other you know states of being where you feel pulled between two separate things but like personally like this is just like where it really like hits home for me
0: yeah to go into the like real world thing i wish that by people gay people and straight people could understand that the real enemy is capitalism (laughs) yeah stop this infighting Eventually, the trail leads Carrot and Gaspod into the mountains, where Carrot passes out from cold and exhaustion. As a pack of wild wolves close in around them, Gaspod prepares to be torn to shreds defending Carrot, when one of the wolves reveals herself to be Angua. Elsewhere, Vimes and company are on the road to Überwald, when the commander notices Skimmer getting increasingly nervous. Suspecting the worst, Vimes goes through the clerk's belongings, and finds something very upsetting before slipping out of the coach just before they are ambushed by bandits. Vimes, Sybil, and the other two officers manage to escape, leaving Skimmer behind. Eventually they arrive at an inn where Skimmer rejoins them, having dispatched the bandits on his own. As Vimes suspected, Skimmer is an assassin, sent by Vetinari to act as a bodyguard, Vimes is irritated, since he dislikes assassins on principle, partially because they keep trying to kill him.
1: Understandable. And doubly
0: so, because Skimmer is in possession of a concealable mini-crossbow, which not even the Assassin's Guild will permit within the city limits.
2: As well as uh, retractable palm blades that kind of slide out from beneath the wrist.
0: Yeah, it's weird how Terry Pratchett (laughs) manages to parody Assassin's Creed years before those games came out.
2: (laughs) Exactly! (laughs) Exactly, because from our our future brains, we're like, aha, so that's what it is,
1: but the timeline doesn't match up. Yeah, it's like, oh, wait a second, I know what this is.
0: But also, with the way they described the, like, one-shot mini crossbow, it almost felt like they were describing the gun from Men at Arms. Did either of you get that vibe? Mm.
1: Not quite,
2: because I was firmly in the it's a crossbow thing,
1: but... Yeah, I don't know if I picked up on that, but it's been a hot minute since I read that part, so I, I might be blanking on it a little. Yeah.
0: Well, it was. They were a little bit vague on what the weapon was at first. It is eventually clarified that it is just a crossbow. The way Vimes reacts to it, and Skimmer mentioning that the Assassins Guild doesn't allow it, it seemed connected, even though I know it wasn't.
1: Yeah, it kind of feels like it's treated like with the same level of reverence that the gun was. What's the
0: what's the worst version of reverence? Uh,
1: dismay. Horror. <laughs> Horror. Yeah, there you go. That's much better than mine. <laughs> To compare it to
2: something else, it seemed to me like it was a similar reaction from the public when uh, it became knowledge that it was possible to 3D print a gun. It was, It's still an incredibly dangerous uh, contraption. There, there is risk of it being unstable, but it, it felt that's what it felt similar to, to me.
0: The next morning, the five of them get back on the road to Überwald, but are soon stopped by a small army of dwarfs, who want to search the coach. Vimes tries to blunder his way through communicating before Inigo steps in with the proper paperwork, denoting their diplomatic immunity, and the dwarfs let them pass. There's a part here where the dwarfs call Cheery a slur, and Detritus stands up for her, which is a uh, basically two short paragraphs, but has a strong emotional moment to it. I'd compare it to the part in Lord of the Rings, where the writers of Rohan make a racially charged threat to Gimli, and Legolas steps in to defend him. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you two got the same vibe.
1: No, but (laughs) it's a wonderful moment. (laughs) Yeah, I think it really shows, like, how far, you know, those relationships have gone in Ankh-Morpork, where, like, in Uberwald, it's very much not the thing.
0: Definitely. Far from the main road, the wolf pack is helping Carrot recover, thanks to the influence of Angua's old friend. Gavin, a wolf of exceptional strength and intelligence, Gavin came to Ankh-Morpork to tell Angwa that her family is planning something nasty, and she is going with him to stop it. After a brief argument, the rest of the pack agrees to help bring Carrot along with the use of a borrowed dog harness. This is probably better said for the end, but do you two think that Gavin is Angua's old boyfriend?
1: Um, nah, not really. I kind of got a vibe that, you know, like they would have been like childhood friends who like, not like so much an on again, off again thing, but more of like a what if, and then it just never changed into anything.
0: But I think definitely Vimes is thinking about it when he meets Gavin.
1: Oh yeah, I, uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think he's, he's
2: the only one, either.
0: <laughs> Back in Ankh-Morpork, acting Captain Colon's despotism and obsessive sugar cube counting has caused such consternation among the rest of the Watch that they've formed their own guild with Nobby as president. While the new guild goes on strike, Veterinary is amused, noting to his secretary, Drumnut, that any intelligent criminal won't try anything while Vimes is out of town, because of how angry the commander will get upon his return.
1: In previous books, I've disagreed with Colon on a lot of things, but a lot of the time him sharing his opinion is played for laughs because he doesn't realize how ignorant he's being about something. But unfortunately, I feel like this book didn't work as well for me on that because unlike in those other books, Colon's in a real position of power here and is definitely using it to his advantage. Yeah. It ground my gears a little bit.
0: And also, while I'm generally in favor of unionizing, uh, police unions have a history that is not spotless.
1: Yeah, it feels like there's a lot of baggage on this one with this. And I think it's probably, like, posthumous baggage, but...
0: It's definitely, like, in this story, unburdened by the complexities of the current day and age.
1: Yeah. All
0: right. When Vimes and the others arrive in Bianc, the city guards attempt to search the coach, but Vimes refuses to cooperate, doubly so when they try to eject Detritus for being a troll without a master. Inigo is surprised and impressed with how effectively Vimes called the bluffs, and even more so when Vimes accurately guesses that the scone of stone has been stolen.
2: Well,
0: dang. I did consider putting in here a joke about how they arrived in Bianca despite Skimmer's directions, but... (laughs) Steam Tams are a little passe at this point. So, Vimes, Sybil, and the others get settled in the embassy. There, they meet Igor, the caretaker and member of the extended Igor family, a group of master surgeons who specialize in serving those on the far side of sanity. After asking for some adjustments to the interior design, Sam and Sybil settle in for the night.
1: I feel like this book really, like, fleshes out the mythos of Igor, and I'm just, like, very, very intrigued with it. And this is a bit of a spoiler. I'm really excited to get to see, like, more of it.
2: Everyone has an Igor in their life.
0: Everyone should be so lucky to have an Igor in their life.
2: It, it's kind of funny though, because I was literally just talking about like the Adams family with my mom the other night, and it's just same vibes <laughs> from from Igor.
0: You weren't around for the episode on it, but did you read *Carpe Jugulum*?
2: I got a little bit into it.
0: I think actually there's slightly more detail about the way that Igors as a community operate in that one.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. This one like gave a little bit more context about how like Igor debts work, I guess if that makes sense as a term. And that the fact that like Igors are supposedly like super eligible bachelors, (laughs) it just like really like provides a whole lot of information that I just go, I'm sorry, we need to talk about this a little more. (laughs) like, you don't get to just drop a sentence about that and then move on.
0: <laughs> but yes, we do. <laughs> so in the morning, it's time to meet with the rulers of Bianc, beginning with the Low King elect. Vimes and Chiri are brought by elevator down into an enormous underground city to be greeted by D, the Low King's advisor, or ideas taster. Vimes inquires about the stolen scone, which causes no small consternation and is eventually brought to see King Reesen himself, who talks cryptically with Vines about why so many dwarves choose to live in Ankh-Morpork. During this scene, the dwarves discuss Vines' many titles, and he mentions that at school he was a blackboard monitor, There's a clear implication that dwarves revere the written word and value record-keeping, so someone entrusted to destroy lessons after they have been learned is clearly someone of importance.
2: I liked that, but this is the scene I was referencing when I said things got a little heavy once you start framing it with the fat being oil. They're not even talking about fat at this point, but King Reeson does comment on how ankh Pork just takes and takes from them, mm-hmm. that the only time their people come back to the mountains is when they're about to die. Vimes does a good job defending himself and his city, but at the same time, they're, they're both in the right, in my opinion, in their own ways. It is heartbreaking to have people just leave when they should be happy in your area, but you know, combined with the, um, moving with the times part of the conversation, it really sends home the cultural difference between these two countries. Mm-hmm. Well, the cities, areas, locations, there we go. Cultures. cultures yes (laughs) well cultural difference yes
0: (laughs) okay i'm sure that'll make sense in some way and it does call back to or call forward i forget if this has already been mentioned but i think it was angua describes Ankomar Park as a great melting pot that melts one direction mostly towards human Mm. yeah you get accepted no matter what shape you are as long as you behave in a way that the humans like recognize is acceptable
1: yeah this book touches on like these really complicated and deep sociological issues that they're very very heavy topics you know and obviously they don't get into them very deep in this book but you know watching your young people at the prime of their lives leave to a different country only to come back when they're old and ready to die that's a super frustrating and complex thing it it definitely
2: was a scene that was meant to mean something. It was meant to be like a a turn towards the camera, this is is what it is. It also kind of feels like, since it wasn't the core theme, like with previous books, especially in the Watch series, we get those more political theme set. Yeah, we get more political themes. It kind of felt more like uh, Sir Pratchett was testing the waters with those, since he kept it so light and focused more on the story he was trying to tell at the time
0: i think that's still the case right because it's not like they get into any answers about these questions
2: and with these things we rarely do
0: yeah i was kind of expecting vimes to maybe say something along the lines of like as a policeman he he sees people running and they're either running away or running to something right
1: Mm-hmm. yeah that would make sense
0: From there, Vimes and Chiri go to meet with Lady Margolata, a vampire whose appearance takes him aback. She wears a fuzzy pink sweater, pearls, and flats. She's also a very fast and friendly talker and denies saying about half the things she says.
1: I have a very lovely image of her being kind of like very 1950s in aesthetic, but if you made it like fantasy medieval.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Once that meeting is done... Vimes and Cheery go to the Von Überwald estate, where the Baroness Seraphine is coldly cordial and makes no inquiry about her daughter. Vimes also notes that one of the dogs seems unusually intense about watching him. After delighting in antagonizing the family by emphatically using the word bath, Vimes and Cheery leave. Upon returning to the embassy, Vimes is shocked to find that Igor was knocked out while unloading the coach. All of their belongings appeared to be in order, but the commander suspects that something must have been taken. Maybe something that they didn't know they were bringing along.
2: It's all starting to come together.
0: Vimes resolves to visit the Klax Tower. Upon arriving, he discovers that the tower was sabotaged and the crew are missing. Inigo is already there investigating, and urgently advises Vimes to return to the embassy while he waits for darkness to send up a signal flare. Shortly after doing so, the assassin is ambushed in the tower and killed.
1: What a way for an assassin to go. Inigo throughout this book has been like such a fascinating character because he's been so much of an enigma that I thought for sure he was gonna make it to the end and we were gonna like find out some like nugget of something that would make it all make more sense. And then it just doesn't get there. And it, like, really raises the stakes because they, like, Skimmer is an intimidating person. You know, he's very good. He he is more than capable in a fight. So if something took him down, like, you know, it's got to be a real threat.
2: The man took on, like, seven bandits by
0: himself. Back in Bianc, Sybil, Cheery, Detritus, and Vimes attend an opera in the Dwarf Caverns. D agrees to bring Vimes to the storage chamber for the Scone of Stone, and Vimes insists on bringing Cheery as a crime scene investigator. In the chamber they find very little, but they learn that D received a ransom note demanding that Rhys Reese Rhysson abdicate or the scone will be destroyed. Without much more to go on, Vimes and Chiri return to the opera and afterwards attend a ceremonial dinner where they meet Angua's brother, Wolfgang von Überwald. During the dinner, the enormous chandelier falls and Vimes tackles the low king out of harm's way. Hours later, Vimes wakes up in a stone cell, along with a small book of matches, and Skimmer's one-shot crossbow. Dee comes along to tell the commander that he has been arrested for violating Dwarf Law. Nobody is allowed to touch the Low King, even to save his life. As such, Vimes will be held captive unless and until the Low King pardons him, which he can't do until after the coronation, which can't happen without the scone. After some time, a pair of guards arrive with food for Vimes, but he uses the matches to temporarily blind them and escape, taking a moment to show off the crossbow and make it clear that he could have killed them, but chose not to. He makes his way through the mine, tossing the one-shot into a ravine along the way
2: just one more instance of Vimes being just a
0: smart guy.
1: Yeah.
2: It's it's moments like that that I really appreciate his character.
1: Yeah, at this point in the book it's becoming like very obvious that like something very strange is going on, you know, and somebody's pulling the strings in a way that they're trying to hurt Vimes. But he has a sense from all his time on the streets of Ankh-Morpork where He knows that he's being set up to do something, and so he should absolutely not do it.
0: Vimes finds a route to the surface, but the support structure begins to crumble beneath him. At that moment, who should arrive but Lady Margolata, who offers Vimes her aid. In the process, she reveals that she, like him, is a teetotaler. She refuses to drink human blood the same way he refuses alcohol, and for much the same reason. The lady flies Vimes out of the mine and deposits him out in the mountains to make his own way back to town.
2: She, this whole time, has been more of an enigma to me than Skimmer. Just, he was confusing, but in a way that we had enough context to assume he was trustworthy. One, that Vetinari sent him, and two, we know about the honor of the Assassin's Guild from the times we've encountered it in the past. That's something they prize very highly. But with her, it's, it's entirely different. We don't know how things work in Überwald. We know about as much of the political game in this country as as Vimes. So she's a lot less trustworthy the whole time, until she brings up her equivalent of his alcoholism. The fact that she knew so much about him to such specific detail was incredibly off-putting, but then she just has a way of coming in with just the right line or at just the right moment to say, hey, I'm really on your side. It's really good writing. It it had me thinking for a long time.
0: Because she has basically displaced her addiction to blood into an addiction to politics. Mm-hmm. She's found something else to focus on so that she's not thinking about drinking.
2: Could you say that Vimes does a similar thing with throwing himself into his job?
0: Absolutely.
1: Not exactly healthy. It's coping mechanisms. It's It's kind of his passion. Yeah, and I think it does a lot to help make... Uh Lady Margolotta like really sympathetic to us because you know we're already sympathetic to Vimes and, you know, you draw the line between them.
0: Mm-hmm. After taking shelter in a cave for the night, Vimes stumbles his way through the forest and finds a hot spring. There he takes a bath and relaxes for a moment. But his respite is interrupted by the arrival of Wolfgang and his wolf gang. <laughs> and Wolf challenges Vimes to the game. And I have bad news. Both of you just lost. Oh, uh, Hot reference. <laughs> <laughs> then,
2: every time somebody brings anything like that up, I'm just catapulted 15 years into the past.
0: Yeah, my signature move was always pretending I had never heard of it, even after somebody had just explained it to me. <laughs> it irritated my sister to no end.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that would... <laughs>
0: So after Vimes gets in a few quips, the hunt is on. He has to run back to town, and the wolves will chase him. Along the way, he meets a trio of sisters who tend to an orchard, and they provide him with slacks and an axe. Slacks and axe, coming to CW this fall. Yeah. Further along, Vimes arrives at a river where he finds a boat and rows it out before falling from the inevitable waterfall.
2: Sharp rocks at the bottom? Most likely. Bring it on.
0: At the bottom, a werewolf attacks him, but he takes advantage of their post-transformation confusion to bash their head on the rocks and flee. Oof. During this sequence, Vimes is accompanied by Death, who says that he started showing up when people might die, This actually harkens back to The Color of Magic, when Death just sort of poked his skull in when Rincewind was in a mere him situation.
1: Yeah, I think it does a lot to, like, we're already familiar with Death as a character, so it does a lot to add to the tension without spoiling anything.
2: Yeah, it it was definitely a, no, no, they wouldn't. They wouldn't.
1: Not now.
0: (laughs) The werewolves chase Vimes up a tree like a scared cat. And he fends them off for a while longer, before ultimately getting saved by the arrival of Carrot and Angua, with Gaspode and Gavin in tow. They chase the werewolves off and get Vimes warmed up with a fire, before going to investigate the Clax Tower again. There, Vimes sweeps up some of what the Klax operators left behind, including several signal flares. And together, they all head back into Bianc. At the embassy, they speak with the captain of the guard, who reveals that while Thierry and Detritus acquiesced to house arrest, Lady Sybil was taken by the Baron von Überwald, and Vimes is disgusted when the captain gives the Nuremberg defense. The commander orders Detritus to kill the captain, and Detritus refuses, which Vimes explains as proper watch behavior. In the Baron's castle, Sybil is fuming at her semi-polite incarceration. The narration reveals that she never actually liked Lady Seraphine, because the werewolf was one of those people who assumed that a large and kind-hearted woman like Sybil must also be stupid. So when Vimes arrives and Sybil hears the shouting, she quickly escapes out the bedroom window. After Detritus blasts the doors apart with his siege-weapon shotgun crossbow, Angua leads the watch officers through her family home. They confront the werewolves, and Carrot ends up fighting Wolfgang. Then Gavin intercepts, with Gaspode going for Wolfgang's vulnerables. The melee sends all of the Morcanid members falling from the parapets into the river. Without Wolfgang as her muscle, Lady Seraphine hands over the scone of stone, which she and Vimes know is a forgery made at Ankh-Morpork. Vimes brings the forged scone back to Bianc, and has some trouble persuading the dwarves to let him bring it to the king, until Sybil sings a relevant aria from the opera they attended the other night, reminding the dwarves that it was in circumstances much like these that the scone was first forged. Forged as in smelted, rather than faked. So it's forged, forged. (laughs) Yeah. Eventually, they bring the scone to the low king, despite Dee's objections, and even the king's political rival declares it to be authentic. King Reeson brings Dee back into the room and makes them swear on the scone about what happened, eventually forcing Dee to reveal that they were behind the conspiracy to unseat the king. Ultimately because Dee is furious about dwarves like Cheri living as women. Because she wants that too. She meaning Dee here.
1: This is really a moment where like, you know, it's kind of like everything just paused for a breath. And it's just like, oh.
2: I had to actually put the book down for a few minutes and just think through the situation because I know some people would immediately jump to her jealousy is entirely misplaced and, you know, why didn't she just join in when really it's a lot more complicated than that. Dee very firmly believes in tradition and has been raised, like, with everything that it is entirely ingrained in her being. She knows who she is, but that doesn't mesh well with what she believes. And then on top of that, it's kind of like that older generation getting angry because the younger generation is able to freely do things that they wish they could have done, or were too afraid to, or, again, culture had told them they couldn't do, and they're just taking it out on the wrong people. It's it's more tragic to me than anything.
1: Yeah.
0: And while there is kind of a cliché of the repressed gay homophobe, I think that the text does very much convey exactly what Dee is feeling, even if it's not explained explicitly, but just through representing it in the circumstances.
2: The the trope is more often, you know, I do mean things to gay people because I'm gay and, you know, like I... Yeah, it's like, it, it wasn't like that this time around. At least that's not how I read it.
0: It doesn't feel shallow, is the thing.
2: Yeah, it, for D, it was so easy for me to picture her like on the brink of tears with with those lines
1: yeah and i think the moments we've gotten to see with cheery so far really help put into context what trying to essentially transition would be like for d and why it just feels like it's not really an option the other thing
2: i do kind of want to bring up with in regard to d is that putting her in the same boat as cheery isn't an excuse for her actions it also planted that seed of hope that she can find, now that she's admitted it aloud, especially in front of people, that she can accept herself more and change as a person. It's never too late for a character to change. Or a person in real life, whether it's transitioning or just living as yourself. For For me personally, it took... 20 years for me to finally be comfortable with myself and stand up for who I am. It's sad, but also hopeful. And it's probably going to be one of those scenes in this series that's going to stick with me the most. Right right up there alongside equal rights. I can be both or I'll be neither. I just appreciate this, this series so much.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Dee is arrested, and Chiri goes to comfort and or interrogate her. King Rissetson sends the other dwarves out of the room to chat with Vines and Sybil about the actual crime. The real scone hadn't been stolen. It was destroyed, ground up into powder and mixed with the sand on the floor of the storage room. But that wasn't even the original scone, just the latest in a long line of reproductions. The object is less important than the ideas it represents, but each replacement is still the true scone. There's a whole bit about the shape of Theseus metaphor in here. Just swapping out the parts of a thing doesn't really change the thing. Mm Mm-hmm. From there, Lady Sybil takes over negotiating a favorable trade deal for ankh rates on fat from the mines. As Vines's adrenaline rush finally wears off, and he succumbs to sleep.
1: He deserves it. Yeah, he, he needs a nap. <laughs> also, just the
0: last third of this book like, has a series of Lady Sybil finally getting to do stuff. And I'm so happy about that.
1: yeah. I feel like this part specifically really shows, like, you know, what her experiences up to this point have given her. And it's this ability to very much adapt and to make these, like, quick-fire negotiations in a way that doesn't seem like it's a negotiation necessarily.
2: I, for one, absolutely loved the line where Vimes was, like, he was kind of contemplating the different people on his side At one point, they were talking about how Angua was, like, ready to snap, but then he looked at Sybil and was like, oh, she's a loaded weapon ready to fire right now. Oh, man, when she went off, it was the greatest thing I've seen. That's actually something I kind of want to talk about, is that she's very much a lady in that traditional sense, like, she went to finishing school, but when she has her kick-butt moments they don't take away that aspect of her character. Like, normally, you see badass or, you know, the, your traditional strong... I don't want to say traditional. Your usual strong woman character is there, removed from their setting and usually taught to fight physically. But it's so much more satisfying, I think, for her to own herself, like, Own who she is, and use that.
0: So, some time later, Vimes wakes up back in the embassy, grateful that the crime has been solved. But he knows that Wolfgang will return. And return he does, mauling the embassy's Igor in the process. Vimes takes a signal flare and pursues the werewolf, confronting him in the town square. When Wolfgang resists arrest and attacks, Vimes fires the rocket, and Wolfgang's dog-like instincts compel him to catch it in his teeth, where it explodes and puts him down. There's a bit in here talking about how Vimes could have delivered a snappy one-liner, but didn't, because then he would have to admit to himself that what he did was murder.
1: I think it really puts it in juxtaposition to a lot of series that focus on police or police-like characters, where, you know, they just get to be cool and tough and the like ramifications of their actions are like never examined with any like thought.
0: Yeah, one particularly shiny facet of copaganda.
1: And as as far as
2: Wolfgang's resisting arrest, it was made extremely explicit. Like Vimes was talking to him, just like, are like asked him, are you resisting arrest? And Wolfgang was like, yes, because I think you're dumb. <laughs>
0: And notably, he committed the crime that Vimes is trying to arrest him for in the embassy, meaning that it is legally in Ankh-Morpork territory. So Ankh-Morporkian laws apply.
2: There is also a part about his not knowing how that law works, which they, uh, Vimes and the captain of the Bianguard, Guard, they kind of came up with an excuse.
0: We also see the coronation, during which the Low King implies that they are actually the Low Queen. And then the business in Uberwald is done, Sibyl reveals to Vimes that she is pregnant, and they resolve to take a leisurely trip home, so they can have some actual vacation. Uh, Carrot, Angua, Detritus, and Cheery head back to Ankh-Morpork, where Carrot leverages the open secret of his royal blood to remind the striking watch officers of their duty and relieve colon of command to everyone's relief. <laughs> and so that was the fifth elephant. What do you think?
2: Congratulations to Sam and Sybil. That was a uh, welcome surprise.
1: I think this is a really strong book in the series. It really strikes the balance between like humor and light fun, and also this like really serious drama. And I, I think the setting like works really well for the tone the book has, where it's like this mysterious gothic horror and. You're in a place you don't know with people you don't know and you've got to uncover this like this whole conspiracy that's going on and nobody knows it yet.
0: This book slaps. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot going on but it's pretty much all bangers. Some of this could have been probably spun out into multiple books. Like the dwarf conspiracy thriller could have been a book in itself and the evil werewolves who are functionally Nazis. That could have also been a book by itself. Admittedly that, that might have been just... Carpe Jugulum again. We just had a book about vampires, and this is kind of a book about villain werewolves, but it's mostly about dwarf politics. Yeah. There's a line early on where Angua mentions her brother and his stupid flag and his stupid uniform, and while the flag does get shown, we don't get any mention of uniforms. It feels like the Nazi parody was going to be a lot more obvious in an earlier draft
1: yeah there's like so much in this book that a lot of things are like hinted at and suggested but not explained in any further detail and i think in a lot of situations in this book it actually kind of works better for that
0: because not everything in reality gets explained or explored in detail
1: yeah and i think you know sometimes you can get kind of lost in the weeds try to explain everything so it's like being like that's a thing cool we're moving on like it it works yeah on a more more lighthearted. oh
0: Mm -hmm, what were we saying I was just gonna make a dumb joke about how we didn't get an Uberwaldian equivalent to cut me on throat Dibbler. Ah, that would have been great. <laughs> yeah, probably like stake me own heart, Dibsky.
1: Yeah, that seems about right.
2: <laughs> on a on a more lighthearted note, I think that the the ending there with uh the Carrot pulling rank in order to get Colin out of his downward spiral. I think that scene actually helped his relationship. With Angua, because of her her comment about him hiding his claws, from what I remember of the previous books, she gets upset with his constant cheeriness because of how he shows it to everyone, and it there's there's hardly like there's nothing special for her in her mind, but it kind of this sort of shows that he does have more sides to him. He just chooses not to show them he 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 chooses his face very carefully. And that's his one of his greatest strengths.
0: That actually brings me to uh, Angua's big dilemma in this story is sort of framed as, not quite, but it's kind of presented as her choosing between humanity and wolfishness with the parallels between Carrot and Gavin. And it's kind of obvious that she's going to choose humanity because she's a great part of the Watch and it'd be difficult to imagine her leaving at this point. I don't know how much we're expected to be worrying about her, like, deciding to stay in Uberwald or anything.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the stakes are maybe a little vague on her, like, internal conflict. I think it still kind of works, at least for me personally, because, you know, as we mentioned earlier, the whole treating it as an allegory for bisexuality and how that leads to, like, an internal conflict, I feel like that's where a lot of the strife and her and Carrot's relationship comes from because she feels that tension within herself and she's unhappy with it and she doesn't know how to be okay with that tension. And because Carrot doesn't feel it at all, she is frustrated that he doesn't see it. It's like she's expecting that to be a point of conflict for them. And because it's not, that's the point of conflict. And so I feel like this book kind of like helped clear that up for her a little bit you know it's like it's okay that he doesn't have an issue with her being a werewolf and he knows what they're getting into and you know they have a short intense discussion at the end of the book where angua basically says that if she ends up turning into something like wolfgang that carrot needs to put her down
0: and she wants it to be carrot instead of anybody else because she knows and trusts him
1: yeah, I sort of read it
2: as an if the if a situation arises where you ever have to turn on me, then I'll know that I've gone too far and probably des- and deserve it.
1: I mean, I think that's a fair way to read it too, because it's left fairly vague, you know, it's just if something like that happens, but I feel like it does kind of resolve some of that tension for her.
2: And with the lack of trust she displayed for her family, it was really nice to just see that she she's not as standoffish as she makes herself seem at times like she really has integrated into the watch as as a family dang she suffered so much loss in this book
0: but also got closure i think on a lot of things on a different relationship sam and lady sybil it's made clear that they do love each other now where would you put sam vimes on the husband's tier list with one being Homer Simpson and 10 being Gomez Adams.
1: Ooh, <laughs> I mean, it's hard to compare to Gomez Adams. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's uh, sitting somewhere around the middle. You know, you know, Vines is not as attentive and compassionate as maybe he could be. Um, that's almost why he and Lady Sybil work in kind of a way. Like, yeah, it gets pushed too far. And she probably would appreciate it if, you know, he was around more often. But it feels very much of like their rhythm with each other that, you know, the watch is part of who he is.
2: I feel like that was a part of Sybil's own character arc in this book. And I'm so glad that she had one. She's so cool. Was a lot of these books, I can, I just always gravitate back to the themes of finding your place. And even with Sybil, it's like her arc was coming to terms with with uh, her husband as he is and personally i would put vimes at like a 7 6 7 thereabouts They both understand each other that, like, this is something we don't need to fight about. It's just who we are.
0: Yeah, I'd put him around a six just because he lets Watch Business get in the way. And, like, even when he is making time for her, he's not always paying attention. Mm Yeah. But also, like, there's no hostility towards each other, right? They know and accept one another.
2: I think that showed the most clearly when Sybil told him to stop thinking politics and start thinking like a cop where she was like no 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 i know this is what i ask of you a lot but i need the other
1: side of you now yeah Mm -hmm. this book provides a lot of context on the relationship because you know obviously these aren't romance books necessarily so we don't get to see a lot of their interactions with each other but that scene where they're laying in bed when igor's taking down all the like mounted animal heads on the wall they're basically taking guesses at what they think each animal is based on the sounds. I feel like it shows this like deep sort of intimacy that you get when you know somebody really well, that you instantly are just like on the same page about something. And it's just a very small, tender moment. And then it passes. And, you know, it feels very natural.
0: Uh, Going back to what you said about Sybil's character arc, Danny, I think it's definitely that she gains a little bit more uh, self-confidence. Mm-hmm. Feeling like she can articulate when something is not right. She finally confronts Lady Seraphine. Incidentally, is interesting because her name is Hebrew in origin, but she's kind of a Nazi. Uh, Sybil finally admits to herself and to her that she does not like this lady. That That's a
2: point where you can see that they learn from each other. With Vimes, it's like, okay, I need to be... Subtle sometimes, and for Sybil, it's I can speak my mind.
0: So I try and find some sort of thesis for each of these books, and I didn't really write it down this time, so forgive me if it's a little scattershot. But I think there's a clear theme of identity in this story, and how an understanding of self is the cornerstone towards agency and true feeling of worth. Mm. Yeah. D is primarily motivated by a feeling of worthlessness in the face of an inability to self-actualize. Wolfgang is, it's implied, motivated by feeling inadequacy because he knows that he was never able to outfight Angua. And so that lack of confidence makes him delve ever further into this idea of strength as a measure of worth by taking it out on people who are not as strong as him. Sybil's arc, as we mentioned, but also Cheery embracing her femininity, but also dwarfishness and how important that it clearly is to her. There is power in understanding yourself and embracing that. Just like, anything else we wanted to go over before getting to the conclusion?
2: I think I'm good. I liked this book a lot more than I, than I thought I did when I finished it. literally this this discussion tonight has helped me realize exactly how much i love this book in particular
0: we never think a Discworld book is perfect but this one rocks
1: it's got a lot of really strong beats i think that brings us right up
0: to the end i want to thank both of you for joining me in this conversation
1: yeah thanks for having us heart hands
0: I also want to say thanks to Willow Carter for our theme music and to everybody who tuned in. Plus, we want to give a shout out to one of our patrons. And this month, it goes to Jessica for contributing at the Wizard Tier.
1: Thank Mm -hmm. you very much. (laughs) Yeah, thanks, Jessica.
0: If you enjoyed the show and want to get in touch with us, you can hit us up on our Discord, which we link to in our Tumblr, our Twitter, and Facebook. Plus, I share all the episodes on YouTube. And of course, at the end of the show, we read out the favorite footnote as voted by you. So, Danny, if you'd be so kind.
2: Vimes had once discussed the Phoebian idea of democracy with Carrot, and had been rather interested in the idea that everyone, apart from women, children, slaves, idiots, and people who weren't really our kind of people, had a vote, until he found out that while he, Vimes, would have a vote, there was no way in the rules that anyone could prevent Nobby knobs from having one as well. Vines could see the flaw there straight away.
0: Next month we'll be looking at the truth. Until then, the, the turtle, turtle moves. moves.